Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series along with Dr. Terry Davidson, Director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. Welcome to our podcast. Today, I will be talking to Dr. Terry Davidson, Director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University, who will be talking about his path-breaking neuroscience research on Western diet, obesity, and related issues. Hi, Susan. How are you today? Yeah, I, I'm happy to start. Could you talk, first of all, I thought listeners might be interested in learning a little bit about how one becomes a neuroscientist. So maybe you could start by just talking about your path to neuroscience and then through neuroscience and the work that you've focused on and some of the conclusions that you've reached. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I, I started out as a, as a psychologist, and, but I was interested in learning and memory. So I learned all kinds of techniques to study learning and memory in humans and non-human animals, particularly rats. And one of the things that uh, I became interested in, so I, I got a PhD from Purdue University, and that's where I studied uh, these learning techniques. I then went on to uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania and the Institute of Neurological Sciences, and I became interested in the brain mechanisms or the brain substrates, the parts of the brain that are involved in learning and memory. And um, so we began studying those substrates and I became interested in a couple things. One was I started out looking at learning and memory, trying to find the area of the brain that was uh, responsible for certain types of memory, and particularly retrieving memories that have been already uh, encoded in your brain. So recalling, you know, who your second grade teacher might be or recalling what you had uh, for lunch today. And, and quite often when people have memory deficits, that's the kind of problem they have. They can't retrieve memories uh, very well. And sometimes it's just based on there's so much interference, they can't suppress things that they're trying uh, that are irrelevant when they're trying to remember important things. So we were trying to understand that process. And so one of the things that I did was we were doing some work on rats that had uh, some damage in this particular area of the brain known as the hippocampus. And uh, I was, again, just studying learning and memory, and I found out that they had very unusual eating patterns they would basically take a lot of really small meals, excess meals. They would eat a little bit more than regular rats, but they kept going to their food cup all the time. And we weren't sure exactly what that was causing that. And so uh, we studied those animals. And what we found was is this particular area of the brain has a lot to do with the control of food intake, particularly inhibiting food intake, making it, telling you when to stop eating. And uh, from that point on, we, uh, well, I built kind of a career tr studying this area of the brain how it changes, what causes those changes in the brain and what its relationship is to obesity. And more recently, what its relationship is to other kinds of behavioral excess uh, other than eating, particularly drugs. That's so fascinating. So you sort of stumbled upon this path for your research. I would say that's true. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I would say that I was looking for something else completely. That That's really so interesting. Um, and so then you did start investigating the connection between the brain and uh, inhibiting food intake. And could you just... I, I have read your, many of your articles and there, there are many of them and they'll be posted in the show notes, a link to your bibliography for people who are interested. But could you kind of take us through the stages of your research in a way that um, you know, we can understand as policy people as opposed to neuroscientists? Sure. Well, I, yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I think the area of the brain that um, I'll just mention that, you know, the brain has a lot of different parts. Sometimes people think it's you know, like a big bowl of jelly or something, but it has a lot of different uh, structures in it. And those structures have different functions. And one of the structures that I was most interested in memory, and people have been studying this structure from memory many years, is called the hippocampus. And so this was the structure that had been damaged in these rats that uh, showed this uh, unusual pattern of eating. And it turned out when we did an extra or uh, more investigations that these animals also tended to gain more weight. They tended to engage in more appetitive behavior, that is food seeking, looking for food than, than normal rats. And we began to, I have to say, there was another study that came out in humans, uh, a person who had this area damaged as a result of um, surgery to correct epilepsy or to help him with epilepsy. And this person was not able to tell when he was hungry or not uh, hungry. So if you gave this person a meal and, uh, and he could, his memory was so poor that he couldn't remember even five minutes after the meal that he'd eaten it, that if you gave this person a meal and asked him how full he was, he would never change. He would always say that uh, he was not full. It would never change. And so you could give him meal after meal and uh, his evaluation of his internal state, how hungry he was, wouldn't change. And so we thought this was could be going on with respect to uh, animals and overeating and why they were overeating. The problem we had was what was producing that? Since most people they, uh, certainly don't have lesions of their hippocampus or have problems with their hippocampus, we didn't think, uh, what could be producing this kind of, uh, of problem? And what we came on was diets that are high in fat and, and that particularly saturated fats and sugar. And saturated fats and sugar seem to produce an effect on the hippocampus that produces what we call pathophysiologies, inflammation, can I ask you a question? Maybe this will stay in and oh, maybe sure. not. But how did you sure. um, come to th hypothesize that it was the Western diet or that it was saturated fats? So one of the first things we looked at was, um, well, if the hippocampus is involved in control of food intake, what are the kinds of things that make people overeat? And there's a lot of interest in the Western diet, as you probably know. I guess I should say Western diet is things that have a lot of saturated fat. So burgers, for example, or french fries, for example. We have a, a, a lot of things that have sugar in them. And, and there are a lot of people in our country who consume a lot of this kind of uh, sweet, greasy food. And that it's called the Western diet because it's so prevalent in Western societies. Right. Uh, used, it used to be just our society. And now this diet is spread all over the world. Um, for example, uh, I, was, I gave a talk in, um, in Beijing and during the talk, I was informed that there are over 700 uh, Kentucky Fried Chickens in Beijing. So again, this is very popular, becoming more popular over the world. And what you're also seeing is obesity is increasing. So part of what we wanted to do and then was let's take a look and see what these diets do to the brain, and particularly this area of the brain. And so that's what, that's what we study. That's really fascinating. So you 
you saw this in a, in a couple of different ways through humans and through in rats. And then how did, how did you go about sort of testing that hypothesis? How did you set up it? Yeah, so one of the things that we did, so keep in mind, I started studying learning and memory. And this area of the brain is a, a kind of an important area for learning and memory. So what we could do is we could, we could test the effects of the diet uh, in the same way we might test the effects of damage in the brain and uh, this particular area of the brain by giving the animal specialized tasks to learn. And there are different kinds of tasks. Some, some kinds of learning problems depend on this area of the brain and some don't. And we're able then to distinguish between if, if we um, used a diet that disrupted the, the kind of task that depends upon that area of the brain and that others, then we know the diet was having a selective effect on that memory portion. And so that's what we did. We gave animals a, uh, uh, these diets uh, and we would put them on the diets for sometimes 90 days, although more recently we found that it, you don't have to be on it that long. And um, what we found was, is that they were impaired in a kind of learning and memory task that depended upon this hippocampus, but they weren't impaired in other tasks that didn't depend on this particular area of the brain. So that gave us some information then that the diet itself was impacting a function that's done by the hippocampus. So then what we did is we began looking at the kinds of, of, of changes that were going on in the hippocampus as a function of eating the diet that might've produced this memory impairment. And what kinds of changes did you see going on? Well, the first thing we thought of, and I have to say, sometimes, you know, when you're doing research, you get lucky. And I had a colleague who was really a world-renowned expert in toxicology, and he was studying the blood-brain barrier. And, but he was looking at it with respect to lead and various kinds of toxins. Well, I incorporated him. I, we, I talked with him, and uh, we began a collaboration to look to see if the Western diet was being toxic to the blood-brain barrier. So we gave the animals Western diet. I should point out the blood-brain barrier, so people who may not know what that is, if you put your hands together your, and your fingers and they were kind of interleaved, that would be a kind of example where you've got a set of cells that prevent things from getting through. And then as you pull your fingers apart, that would be an example where you'd have higher permeability, more things could get through. Well, the blood-brain barrier is kind of like that. It's a set of interwoven uh, cells. Uh, they're called endothelial cells, but interwoven cells. And typically what they do is keep bad stuff out of the brain. And uh, they also provide a way for good stuff to get in. They kind of monitor what you should say, the homeostatic or the normal milieu of the brain to make sure that it has the right amount of sodium and, and sugar and glucose and so on, right amount of neurotransmitters. Well, if you weaken that blood-brain barrier, you change it or, or damage it in some ways, then it doesn't work as well. And that can produce in the brain uh, what are called pathophysiologies, such as uh, inflammation can happen in the brain. There's a thing called oxidative stress when um, the brain is kind of running short of, of uh, glucose or energy. Um, there are a number of different kinds of things that can harm the brain when the blood-brain barrier uh, goes bad. One of the things that we discovered was that uh, the Western diet uh, had a selective effect on the hippocampus. So even though uh, other areas of the brain, other structures uh, were not changed by the Western diet. The hippocampus's blood-brain barrier was particularly sensitive uh, to the effects of Western diet. It would be more likely to be uh, show dysfunction. Wow. So, and then that affected the kinds of memory functions that the hippocampus performs? That's correct. And so I think, you know, getting, how, do you, how does this memory function get back to uh, 
to the notion of controlling food intake. Well, one of the things uh, that we found is the, our, our animals were having this memory dysfunction, but what it was was a kind of memory dysfunction that prevented them from inhibiting their behavior. And so you might think something like, if I'm always thinking of something rewarding, I may respond more to cues that's, that, that are associated with that. So if I, uh, if I was on a diet, for example, Normally, I might be able to, uh, if everything was functioning well, I might be able to ignore a cue of the golden arches or some other kind of cue for food and just go about my business because I could inhibit that because I have other things to do. Well, we think in these animals and in people, what happens is that ability to inhibit responding to those cues is, is reduced. And uh, we have an environment, sometimes it's called the obesogenic environment, an environment that generates obesity. And the reason they call it that is because there's so many food cues and so many different types of foods and advertisements and people just uh, walking around the streets eating foods. And uh, every place you go, there's, there's uh, you know, snacks and candies and things like that. Well, this environment, if you're going to put a person who can't inhibit responding to those kinds of cues as well, they're impaired in that, they tend to eat more of that stuff. And so that's why we think it's this, this kind of, it's preventing memories of the positive consequences of eating those things um, it's weakening the ability to prevent those things from c controlling your behavior. Wow, that's fascinating. And, and we'll get back to that when we start talking about the policy implications of your research. But let's let's lay out your research a, a little bit more first. So that's, that talk is about obesity. And right. are there other aspects of the this connection between the Western diet and obesity and the functioning of the brain that you've been exploring in your research? So we've developed what's called a vicious cycle model. And, and the way the model goes is that if you eat this type of Western diet, you can produce these changes that are, how should I say, um, damaging or impairing in the hippocampus. That, those changes then produce an ability to, uh, or a reduced ability to inhibit responding to food cues. We're in an environment where there's lots of food cues. And for the most part, we have plenty of this Western diet. So when you Inhibit the, uh, you impair the ability to inhibit responding to those food cues. Your environment full of those cues, you tend to eat more of that Western diet, which then produces more hippocampal dysfunction. And what we're interested in, matter of fact, um, I have uh, several colleagues and I are working on this question as well. What's the link between that and say longer term dementias? So again, keep in mind that the hippocampus is an area of the brain that's very much involved in um, uh, memory function, and it's also an area of the brain that's a primary site of uh, pathophysiology associated with Alzheimer's disease and other kinds of cognitive dementias. And so what we're trying to explore is the link between these diets and, uh, and ultimately uh, later life dementias. Right. So I, I did see some of your research papers on, on that question. And what are you finding? Well, so... <laughs> It's kind of a difficult question to say. We're certainly producing the pathophysiologies, but you have to look at the animal in terms of, uh, 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 and humans as well over the long term. And so I have to say that in terms of, are we linking this to uh, say Alzheimer's disease? What I can tell you is, is that in animal models, uh, we don't see, how should I say, that one of the key features of Alzheimer's disease are called plaques and tangles. And uh, they're, they're they're called amyloid plaques or protein plaques. That, and uh, for many, many years, people have been trying to study those plaques and tangles as a way to try to uh, either reverse or prevent Alzheimer's disease. As it turns out, uh, there are uh, 
a lot of recent data, say data from the last five years are saying, wait a minute, may not be the plaques and tangles that are a problem at all in Alzheimer's disease. And that's because recently they've discovered that a lot of people have a lot of plaques and tangles in their brain. These are humans, don't have cognitive impairment. And so that, that is a challenge for these uh, models that depend upon um, the idea that plaques and tangles are causing the dementia. The interesting thing is that what you see in these human models is breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. You see inflammation in, in uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you see oxidative stress. You see these pa same pathophysiologies that you're seeing being produced by the diet. Now, again, they're much greater in the, in the dementias than, our, than we've seen in the diet, but we haven't had animals or people on the diets such a long time that we can, can say for sure that uh, the diets are going to produce the same kind of effect as uh, you see in the dementia. That's really interesting. And are you are you um, trying to do that? Do you have rats that are long term on these diets? So we have. Uh, I, this is very very expensive research because um, you have to maintain rats for maybe 800, 900 days. They last can last over three hundred days, and so. Um, we have to maintain the rats uh, for 300 days and we have to look at them across time. So we have a set of studies that are planned now where we're going to look at exposure early in life to this, these diets. We're going to look at exposure in midlife and we're going to look at exposure to these diets in late life. So maybe the first 150 days of an animal's life, the next 350 days and, and perhaps the last 300 days or so of their life to see if the time of exposure uh, will produce will make a difference. So if I get exposed to these diets when I'm really young, will it have a big impact on, on the rat anyway when they get older? And right now, no one knows the answer to that question. And uh, we, we hope uh, we, we have a grant uh, application now in the works, and we hope that uh, this will be successful and we can be able to start that work. Right. I will add that we're also, uh, this grant is in conjunction with a, a colleague of mine from Australia. His name is uh, Richard Stevenson. And he is studying the very same things uh, in humans. Now, of course, he can't study across the lifespan of a human. A rat's lifespan is about three years. Uh, as you know, human lifespan is much longer than that. So he can't study across the lifespan. But what he'll do is cross-sectional work. So compare people at early age, people at midlife, and people at late life. Uh, these are different people. With rats, of course, we compare the same animals across those, that time frame. Right. Now, it can't be like the movie the seven years movie where they, you know, revisited people throughout their lives and made a yeah. documentary, right? That would just could, take too long. Uh, that's right. Yeah. To sort that, of figure out. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, again, if you're going to look at someone from early life to old age, a lot of researchers won't last that long either. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. right. So at any rate, we, we are interested in, in, in the dementia. I can tell you that we get, effects on this area of the brain very, very rapidly. Uh, we'll get within 12 days exposure, but it looks like there's a tendency for the brain to try to recover from that. And what we don't know is how, how, what the long-term exposure will be in the ability of the brain to recover. That's really interesting. I have a question to ask, which maybe doesn't belong in the podcast, but I'm curious about it. What is it, what do you hypothesize is the reason that humans start wanting to eat so much saturated fat in the first place, it seems to me like it should. It maybe it's it's sort of a you know a evolutionary thing where a certain amount of it was a good idea, and so 
the brain was sort of programmed to want it, but then it's too easy to get in this environment. Is it some something like that? Or well, people will say a lot of like some of the most tasty things are fat and sugar, and you put them together, and and so some people just simply say it's just very tasty. Um, the thing that's and it's and actually there probably wouldn't be as much of a problem with fat and sugar if it were not for the fact that we can't seem to control it. So what I'm saying is is that. For the most part, we, we call it homeostasis. We take in as much energy as we need and you don't need to take in any more. And if you did that, if you were in energy balance, so that is the amount of food, saturated fats, sugars was equal to the amount of energy you expended, then no one would gain any weight. So the real question is, why is it that those particular kinds of foods produce a um, what's called positive energy balance? You're taking in more energy of those with those kinds of foods than you need. And of course, when you do that, you start storing that as fat. So our, our thought is, is that those things do that because they change the area of the brain that helps you inhibit eating behavior. And if they do change the area that area of the brain that makes it more difficult to inhibit, then you would tend to eat more. Right. I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm just thinking evolutionarily, maybe it made sense that you know, humans develop such a big taste for fat and sugar because it was a high energy and you needed to eat a lot of energy in order to maintain. There is that, there's a thing called the thrifty gene hypothesis. And basically what that hypothesis says is that um, people who are, there used to be famines. And uh, fortunately in our country, and unfortunately it still happens in the world in different places, but famine was a very common thing. And the idea was, is that People who uh, had a lot of fat would, could endure famine more, and that allowed them to uh, survive, which is, of course, important in ev evolution. So they were able to pass their genes on, and those genes uh, were related to fat. That's a very controversial theory. It, it, it makes a nice story. It's a very difficult theory to prove. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, that's just one, uh, that's an idea people have about it. But um, it's also something that I, it's very difficult for me to try to change the genes of someone. Now, there are, are people who, um, and with good reason, think there's a strong genetic component uh, to obesity. However, they also call this component, they call it polygenetic. What that means is there's more than one gene that makes uh, a person obese. There could be many, and they could interact in various kinds of ways. And then, of course, the environment is going to impact that as well. What it makes for is a very complicated uh, problem to solve if you want to know what the genes are. There's not, if you had just one gene, for example, it would be fairly easy to manipulate. But if you, as polygenetic, uh, and it could be many genes, uh, that makes the, the problem much more complex. Right. And this, again, I think we, we're going to have to explore this more when we start talking about the connection between your research and the policy conclusions that come from it. Um, but yeah, let, let, let's just explore one one more thing. And that is, so we've talked a little bit about uh, Western diet and memory and Western diet and obesity and Western diet and Alzheimer's disease. And a little bit, if you want to, also about Western diet and risk-seeking behavior or drug drugs and that, that kind of thing. So uh, there's a couple of things to talk about there. So I look at the effects of Western diet and, and producing excess food intake and uh, excess food seeking behavior as an example of behavioral excess and poor inhibition. And so um, what we were actually looking at uh, is 
uh, other examples of behavioral excess, and one would be drug abuse. Uh, and the idea is that uh, people who um, use drugs at, to the point where they abuse them, where that um, it really has a negative impact on their lives, they overuse these drugs. That's another example of behavioral e excess. What's happening is it's the same area of the brain that's being influenced by the drugs as the area that's being influenced by the Western diet. And so in both cases, you have a failure to inhibit behavior. Uh, and, and in the drug case, the behavior is directed toward the drugs. In the, in the obesity case, the behavior is uh, directed towards, towards food and, and, and high-calorie beverages. So um, we have some evidence for this. And we've looked at, we published some papers looking at cocaine. And uh, we have some work in progress looking at um, opiates. And the cocaine research, uh, and there's been some other research as well, uh, using uh, methamphetamine, shows that uh, uh, an animal given um, cocaine, what this animal will do is uh, they, over, they learn to over-respond and they show impairments in the same kinds of problems that the animals who are eating the Western diet show and the animals that have lesions to their hippocampus show. They show the same kind of impairment and it's kind of focused, it's selected for that area. And plus they're showing uh, disruption of the blood brain barrier. And so this is suggested to us that there could be a common mechanism among uh, the drug use and the overeating use. And perhaps you said other risky behaviors. Again, we, this is a thing to explore, but uh, a lot of risk taking behaviors are examples of behavioral excess, doing something to excess. And so uh, we're very interested in trying to understand uh, if the same mechanism that produces excess um, drug intake and excess food intake uh, also produces behavioral excess and uh, risky behaviors of other types. Wow, that's fascinating. Let me ask you one other question, and then I want to ask you if there are other things we haven't covered that we should cover before we move on to a discussion about policy implications. And that's a, a medical question about are there ways to heal the hippocampus after these kinds of assaults or damage occurs? So our work would suggest that one of the things you want to do is try to protect the blood-brain barrier. So I'm, first off, um, healing brain damage it may be more difficult, and I'm not saying it's impossible, but it may be more difficult than preventing it. And so what we're trying to do is find ways to um, prevent the damage. And one thing you might say, right, is, well, just tell people not to, uh, to eat these saturated fats and sugar sugary foods and tell people not to use uh, illicit drugs. And the fact is, people already know that. And it was Hippocrates said that the, the, the surest way to a long and healthy life was to eat healthy foods and get exercise, not too much and not too little. Um, and what we have today are people who have certainly been told that by their doctors many, many times, and especially with respect to obesity, and unfortunately still can't do it. And so what we want to do then is say, how then can we prevent these foods and perhaps drugs or other, other events, activities from having this impact on the hippocampus and on this blood-brain barrier? And so we've been looking at a number of things. I could get into the weeds on this if you want, but there's a particular substance that is reduced, or I should say released, in a number of different cases where blood-brain barrier damage occurs. And uh, this substance is called, uh, uh, well, I'll just call it MMPs, or MMP2, MMP9. And these are what are called metal uh, matrix metalloproteinases. 
any rate, what they tend to do in these diseases is break down the blood-brain barrier by damaging, I mentioned the interleaving uh, uh, of these cells in the blood-brain barrier. They damage the proteins that keep those cells together. And what we're looking at is, does this happen with diet? And does this happen with, with, with drugs? And then what we're looking at is things that prevent those MMPs from being released to see if we can prevent the diet and drugs from producing behavioral excess. So there's some possibility that long in the future, there might be some sort of drug type therapy that could. Yeah, long in the future. I, I would really hope that it's not too long, but you might be right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. But then there's research going on in that area too. That's really Oh, we're doing that. Yeah, we're doing that yeah. in our own lab right, right now. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Another kind of topic that I wanted to explore with you is all of the work that you're doing now with the Center uh, for uh, Neuroscience and Behavior. And I know you've gotten some really big new grants. And so you've got a lot going on. Do you want to sort of summarize some of that work for our audience? So I, I do want to say that neuroscience is a, um, it's a broad field. And so uh, just in the Department of Neuroscience, we have people who are studying um, they're studying uh, autism. They're studying uh, language difficulties, looking at the cerebellum. So keep in mind what neuroscience does is um, basically it looks at the function of the nervous system, things that can go wrong with the nervous system and things that, that how it operates under normal conditions. And so uh, we have folks that are examining that. We have folks who are looking at perception. And these are uh, humans. These are, these are things in humans. We also have folks uh, who I mentioned, I have colleagues now that I'm working with that uh, have been studying drug addiction for many, many years. And uh, so their abilities to manipulate, um, uh, and, and uh, uh, how should I say, manipulate exposure to drugs and measure the effects of those exposures are uh, vital to tr us trying to understand how these effects uh, implicate the hippocampus, for example. Then um, there are other areas of the brain that are, um, you might recall, reward centers or uh, uh, decision-making centers. And we have faculty members in our center who are looking at those areas and see how they change and how they're operating. So part of the problem is, of course, um, we don't know everything there is to know about how the system works uh, under normal circumstances. And so there's basic research trying to understand that, those, those systems too. Um, we, uh, it, so the center itself has a number of different types of folks. We have people who are studying traumatic brain injury. Uh, and that would be a case where uh, it's related to hippocampus, by the way. So if you get hit hard anywhere in the head, you can damage your hippocampus, even though it seems to be far removed from the site of the, where the impact was of uh, the trauma. But these are, again, things that we want to know. Okay, so what's causing that damage? What are the links between uh, the the impact, let's say, the trauma and the change in hippocampus. There are other interesting things as well, and these are really mysterious to me. I mentioned differences in blood-brain barrier when you eat a diet and when you take drugs, and also it's the case when you have a, uh, someone hits you or have a, a trauma in some part, uh, part of your brain. Um, there's recent research indicating that the hippocampus blood-brain barrier is also being impaired in things like schizophrenia, and things like depression. And hippocampus has been linked to depression for some time, but there never been really a strong link to a particular mechanism that had to do with the blood-brain barrier. And, and recent, I say recent research, papers that come out this year have, have indicated that 
those, are, those things are also involving blood-brain barrier. What's difficult to determine is what the etiology is. So what is, so how does, how does depression end up messing up the blood-brain barrier? And is it a cause or is it an effect? If it's a cause, then we want to know how uh, the blood-brain barrier is changed uh, to produce depression. If it's an effect, then I guess um, we still need to find the cause of depression and maybe a way to uh, protect the blood-brain barrier so other things won't go wrong with respect to dementias or other kinds of problems. Obesity, for one. Wow, that's fascinating. And hopefully in, in future podcast sessions, we'll get some of your colleagues on to talk about yes. some of these yeah, other I, issues as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah we, have, we have folks that are doing very interesting work in fibromyalgia, uh, work in cancer as well. Uh, and I have to say, we're a very collaborative environment here. And uh, so people who um, maybe not be interested in the kinds of things I do are still really willing to help us do that work. So when I say that's not their research focus, they're really to step out of their own laboratory to help someone else. And that's what we try to do in our laboratory as well. And so quite frankly, that's what a center is supposed to do. You bring together a bunch of scientists who have different kinds of skills and then you try to maximize the benefit you can get by bringing those skills together to answer a question. That's wonderful. And I can also see from your publication record that you're just a terrific mentor to lots of uh, junior people and to students who are uh, headed into the neuroscience area. You know, I, I, I've always, I, I, I've said in the past that one of the things that I want my students to do, uh, my PhD students, is I'd, I'd want them to surpass me. I want them to do better than me. I just wish they wouldn't do it so fast. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. You are a, a true teacher. That's wonderful. Well, before we sign off, on, uh, for this session, are there other issues involving your research that you think we ought to get out on the table so that when we come back for our second session and start talking about the policy implications and the links between your research and potential policy uh, directions um, that we should sort of know as our um, foundational basis for understanding your research? So... I, you know, I've tried to give kind of an, a broad overview without getting too much technical detail. I think that um, I think the main thing is not just from my research, but it's a more general issue, and that is that when we make discovery and when we we find uh, things that are of interest, a lot of scientists don't know what the steps are in terms of we don't know how to communicate it particularly well to the public. And my impression is, and, and I'm sure the podcast will uh, give me, uh, inform me more about this thing, but policymakers are interested in the same kinds of things we're interested in. And that is we're interested in human welfare and, and, and the betterment of, of, of society, just making things, uh, dealing with problems that are, that are uh, how should I say, uh, reducing the quality of life. And so scientists, many of us are interested in those things too. Policymakers are interested in those things, but there's a big gap in terms of what the scientists know about the policymakers and what the policymakers know about the scientists. We have different cultures, different ways of talking. And so one of the things I would hope would happen with this podcast is we kind of fill in that gap or narrow it anyway, so we have a better way of communicating with each other. Absolutely. And I, I think that w that we can achieve that goal. We'll see in our next session. But I think that um, everybody wants to have those conversations. And 
you know, you're, you're being able to present your research as clearly as you have uh, without getting into all those technicalities shows that it can be done and it can be done in a way that's accurate and useful to others besides other scientists. I think it's really important for policymakers and scientists too, but policymakers to be able to determine what's good and what's not. Yes. And what's what's important to go with and what isn't. Because again, we don't want to have the world full of data that um, is, uh, how should I say, conflicting or inaccurate. And um, so we just have to do a better job at knowing uh, what to be confident in, how how much we should have confidence. And as, as you know, there's lots of controversies going on now. Uh, and science changes, right? And especially when something new comes along and, and with respect to the COVID virus, for example, there's new data every day. And what a scientist has to do is take the best data they have available. And sometimes they make a guess and the guess is wrong and they have to acknowledge that guess and then move on to get even better data that you have more confidence in. And that's the way it is with any aspect of science. And I do think that uh, it's important for policymakers to help uh, to know how to make those decisions as well and know how to evaluate what the scientists are telling them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, misunderstanding science and making policy based on bad science yes. is, is just as bad as not finding the good science. And I think, I think you're in absolutely our, right. Yeah. yeah. Our third podcast, we're going to explore that with an, another researcher from an American university. So um, I think that's a really important point, too. And certainly, and it also goes to the lay public being able to understand, for example, with the COVID directives, that that changes in what the directives are calling for aren't because people don't know what they're doing. It's because right. people are responding to the very best science they can. Right. And they're learning more uh, every day. So that that that's the important thing. Um, and it is, I think, important for policy. I think policymakers are good at communicating with the public much better than scientists are. And so I think that's another reason to have um, a good connection, uh, make that gap smaller between the science and the policymakers. Absolutely. Well, so that's going to be the subject of our next podcast. And for now, let's sign off. And I'll just end by saying that we will have uh, in the show notes links to Professor to Dr. Davidson's amazing research for people who want to continue to explore all of these issues. And we'll be back in our second podcast with a discussion about the policy implications of this research. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy at american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear more about.